Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Philly DA is a multi-part series that details the dramatic work inside the office of Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner as he and his team worked to end mass incarceration and transform the criminal justice system from the inside. In 2017, Philadelphia had one of the highest incarceration rates of any major city in the United States. Under the leadership of District Attorney Larry Krasner, it has become the epicenter of an historic experiment that could shape the future of prosecution in America for decades to come. We're joined today by the co-directors of the incredible documentary series, Philly DA, and that would be Yoni Brook and Ted Passan. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so thank much. You much for having me. Yeah, thank you. How did this documentary series come about? What was sort of the inspiration? Yeah, the series started... I, I, I've been in Philadelphia for most of my life at this point. As a teenager in my early 20s, I had a lot of friends who were activists. I was kind of coming up in activist circles. And Larry Krasner represented a lot of my friends who were arrested for protesting. I had been at protests with his phone number written on my arm, but I'd never actually met him. I just kind of knew of his reputation. And then a friend called in 2017 and said, hey, you know that guy, Larry Krasner? He's running for district attorney. But it was on the tenor of like, isn't that hilarious? Like, what, 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 a, what a ridiculous joke. Like, that's amazing and so funny that he would do that. But of course, he's not going to win. And it really just seems like, oh, it's a great stunt to get the city to question the role of the district attorney in a way that maybe had never been questioned before. And so it seemed like, oh, this could be an interesting moment to document. Nobody had ever, you know, the discussion around the district attorneys race had never been so heated, had never been so nuanced. And so it just seemed like, oh, this is something interesting going on here. So that friend who knew Krasner kind of uh, connected us and we started following the campaign, not really knowing exactly what we were going to make, but just knowing that this was an interesting moment. And then when he won, we were shocked, as was the entire city and a lot of the country. And we were just like, okay, well, all right, well, this story just got way bigger. The real story is like, are you going to be able to do any of this stuff? Why? Why not? What is it? What is it going to mean when a bunch of outsiders who, who made their made their reputations as opposing this office take over the office? What's going to happen? And so we decided to keep it going. And then at that point, we thought we had a feature on our hands, and it was about a year in that we just realized that the story was just too big for a feature to do the story right, to do justice to the access that we had gotten and to all, all the different opportunities to show the power and the discretion of the DA's office, which is so hard to see. Most of the public doesn't understand that this, that this was going to be a bigger story. And so it grew um, kind of organically into a multi-part series, first five parts and then six parts. And then, and then we realized it was actually eight parts. Let me let me ask you, Yoni, why did Larry Krasner run for district attorney? Yeah, I mean, if, if you ask Larry Krasner why he wanted to be DA, he would say that he had been in the system for 
30 years as a defense attorney, as a civil rights attorney, somebody who um, took on sometimes unpopular causes or protest movements like Ted mentioned, um, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Philadelphia, but he also did a lot of work for defendants, people who had been accused of crimes, sometimes had committed those crimes and needed um, defense work. And so that oftentimes meant that he was defending people who had you know, been in and out of the system sometimes their entire lives. And he would say something like, you know, the system didn't necessarily make them better. You know, they had been in incarceration, they had been on probation. And, you know, the prosecuting office was, he would say, throwing more uh, years at them in prison or on probation. And they weren't coming out with job skills or life skills or anything that would bring them back to their community in a holistic way. So he, again, this is his perspective, viewed the DA's office as a driver of mass incarceration and not being really imaginative enough of what it could do to effectuate change in that. You know, there had been DAs who, had, we had a DA named Lynn Abraham in Philadelphia, who was the DA for 20 years. And the New York Times called her the queen of death because she sent more people to, the, to death row in Pennsylvania than anybody else in the nation. And so, you know, Larry kind of grew up under that regime seeing that that was the prosecutor's office. They looked for the most in terms of the death penalty. They were throwing the book at protesters who had, who, that, that was the world of the DA's office. So I think he saw that there were incremental changes happening. The DA's since then, although he was indicted and sent to prison on, on corruption charges, had started more diversion programs, had made changes to the system. It wasn't the same prosecutor's office as it was 20 years earlier. I think Larry saw a lot of those changes as incremental and he did not want to be an incrementalist. He wanted to sort of get into the system and try to overthrow it from the inside. And that was sort of a radical proposition um, as he was running. The level of access here in this documentary is just remarkable. You're inside the office. You're getting to know the different players of the old regime and the old and kind of the different departments that the DA has to to deal with, and getting to know a little bit about Larry and Dana and these different very important people in the film. What if any was there reservations about you being around? Because uh, I can imagine that there were people in his in Larry's inner circle that would be very leery of people who were kind of focusing on the sausage making, if you will, of being in an office like that and knowing how vulnerable they would probably be politically if things got out that would not look good for them. I'm curious about how you were able to establish this level of uh, comfort and level of obviously people in the room were comfortable with you being there. How did that come about? I'll just say really quickly that that the movie Wiener had come out like a year before we started. Right. And everybody in the office, like his communications department, not Larry. Larry, I think, th thought this would be an opportunity to tell a story that hadn't been told. But uh, people kept asking us, are you guys making Wiener? And <laughs> and we had to turn it around to them and say, I don't know. Are you guys making Wiener? Because I think it takes two <laughs> to make Wiener. <laughs> Yeah, we just kept saying, as long as Larry doesn't sext anybody, no one's making wieners. So the power is in your hands, guys. <laughs>
That was a remarkable documentary, and not not the likes of which I I think we'll ever see again. But uh, but go ahead, Ted. So you know, getting to know these people and getting to sort of a point where you could be in a room where there were some very tough conversations about to take place. Tell me what. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think um, you know, there's there's a there's a couple parts to that one is that you're right. I mean, you know, Krasner's communication director Ben Waxman, who's in the series, definitely had a love hate relationship with us. He thought Larry was insane for doing this, as did many people around him. It was funny because a lot of times he would be like, come on, do we really want to let these guys into this? Like, are you sure? He, he kept like kind of sounding the alarm. But then he would come up to us and he'd be like, all right, look, guys, if I'm not wearing my my professional hat, I think this is going to be I think you're making something really amazing. <laughs> <It's> like, but <laughs> it's my job to control the narrative. And I can't do that with you. So it makes me crazy. But I think one of the things that kind of worked in our favor is that, you know, in some ways having a film crew at the DA's office, while it was incredibly unorthodox, I mean, it's, it's a it's a historically notoriously opaque institution that nobody ever gets to see inside of. But at the same time, we were not the craziest thing that was happening in the office. You know, you had Larry coming in, turning everything on its head, bringing in all these former defense attorneys. It was bedlam, you know, firing all these people. And so in some ways, having a camera crew there, it seemed kind of just seemed like, well, it's just part of the crazy. It's just part of the circus. So in some ways, I think kind of worked in our favor. Also, we just showed up every day and we were there from day one. We just became normal. Uh, luckily, we work out of a production company that I'm a co-owner of that just by chance happens to be based across the street from the DA's office. So it was incredibly convenient for us to just keep showing up we, we just kind of, you know, having a camera crew in meetings just kind of became what you did after a while. Yeah. Um, so that certainly helped. And then another part of it was that, funny enough, even though we, we got in through the door because people knew that the boss was okay with this documentary being made, there was never any proclamation saying like, hey, we're doing this documentary. Here's the protocol for being a part of it or not being a part of it. It was very like, you know, they had they had bigger issues to worry about than us. And so we spent a lot of time just running around the office, totally unminded, but trying to meet people to, to, you know, to tell them what we were doing, to tell them why we wanted to film, to try to get them on board to what we were doing. Because, you know, we, we're not going to film anybody who just doesn't want to be filmed. So we still needed to get consent from everybody. But we spent a lot of time just running around the halls and kind of making relationships and talking to people. And, you know, to his credit or his detriment, however you think of it, Krasner had no idea about most of the stuff that we were filming if he wasn't there. But we kind of just developed this way of working. And just to be really clear, Ted mentioned it, like, you know, the, the, the DA himself and the DA's office, part of our condition of making this film was that they would have no editorial control over the final product. They would have a chance to see it before it was public to make sure we didn't put anything there that would damage a case or a witness or a victim of crime, but they wouldn't get to make themselves look any better or worse. And, you know, we kind of laid out those conditions for Krasner and Krasner's team. And I think Krasner as an individual said, well, that's great. I want other cities to learn from what I do great and what I do wrong. But people like the staff, their communications staff, said, well, wait a second, we don't want anything out there that makes us look not professional and like we don't have our shit together. So I think there was an inherent tension there 
um, between the goals of the man, perhaps, and the goals of the institution. The other thing I'll say about forming relationships, Ted mentioned that we spent all this time in the office, but the other trick to making this project is that it really could only be made by people who lived in Philadelphia. Um, you couldn't have a camera crew from New York or LA come in and do this, as talented as those folks might be, and perhaps more talented than us. You know, this was a story in our backyard, which meant that sometimes we would see prosecutors at the zoo with our kids. We would go on the weekends or after work. There would be parties because there was so much turnover in the office. Sometimes people were quitting or fire, being fired in droves. There would be goodbye parties at the local prosecutor or cop bar. And we would go to those parties without our cameras just to get to meet people and tell them what we were doing and the intentions of what we were doing. We weren't making a Larry Krasner Valentine or campaign video. And putting in those kinds of hours where, where sort of what you see in the film is actually the tip of the iceberg yeah. of, all of, the, of all of the relationship work that went in so that when there was a big meeting or when there was something that was happening inside the office, we weren't just starting from scratch at that moment. As someone who's worked around politicians for a fair amount of time, watching Larry Krasner in this film, he strikes me as someone who I actually uh, worked with before, very similar to somebody I know, I know very well. And that is that he has this ability to kind of take his hands off the steering wheel. He's confident enough about the overall objective to not really be too worried about how they get there. And he does trust people around him. And it's we're way into the series before we really ever see what I would call a personal moment with Larry. He and his wife are on the rooftop. They're discussing. He's talking about meeting somebody that day. That's the first time we really see him with his guard down. And he, and he seems like an exceedingly smart person, 32 years of dealing with this office and sort of dealing with the facts on the ground of criminal justice in this country have given him a level of confidence and, and a belief in what he believes in that really comes across in the film. Ted, you want to seem a fair assessment of him? I think that's a really, really astute breakdown of it. And, you know, one of the things that was, you know, maybe a little challenging for, for us as storytellers and filmmakers, you know, you obviously, when you, when you have a subject, you want to get as close to them as possible. You want to know what's inside them, what makes them tick. You want to like see behind the guard you know, as you see in the series, is somebody who, as you said, is extremely confident and extremely intelligent, but also has his guard up. Yep. And we've kind of learned that in some ways, you know, he's a product of the culture of the criminal justice system. And, you know, we kind of realize that there's, it's, you know, a lot of the people we talk to, they see and are dealing with such horrific things day in and day out, the worst of what's happening in the world, murders, rapes. And so we've seen that a, a survival mechanism for most of them in the industry is putting up this guard, putting up this shield to kind of not feel it. Even though you find after you talk to them, if you can get through that guard, it's just below the surface. It's really there and they do feel it and they feel it deeply and he's no exception. And so while it can be really hard to get through that and it just took a lot of time and it just took a lot of patience it's 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 in there and in some ways it's really representative of the culture of the criminal justice system and in some ways it's like also representative of a barrier to change because in some ways you have to really feel this stuff to feel the urgency to feel the problems yeah. but it's also devastating to do that 
And so that's something, even for a reformer like Larry, it can be a challenging step because it kind of asks so much of you and there's so much in there. So at, at, at the end of the day, we just kind of learn to embrace it. Yeah, well, I, I want to let people know Philly DA, it is, as I said, it's um, under the umbrella of Topic, which is an affiliate of PBS. And the series is screen is screening or streaming, depends on how you want to say that, uh, starting on Topic on July 1st. So it's underway now. And there's just so much to recommend about this. And one of the things that it's at, for me at the core of all of the what is being discussed and challenged and in this series, Philly DA, has to do with systemic racism. The challenge of the criminal justice system is the challenge of a race-based system of adjudicating crimes in this country. And what is, to me, so incredibly illuminating in watching this series, you hit some hot spots here. You come in contact with sort of, as I would refer to them as the gatekeepers of a system that has over time evolved into this systemic racist system. This is my analysis, I'm not putting this on you to, to confirm that part of it, but you come across, you know, the, the judge association, uh, the police uh, um, organization, um, fraternal order of police. We're talking about things that are so embedded and so much in the fabric of Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, you name it across the country of this kind of system that hides in plain sight and where people are put in these kind of these streams of of uh, incarceration, probation, parole that will never, ever see the light of day. And I I just so much appreciate that. Again, I don't know if this is your analysis or not. I don't expect you to agree completely with what I'm saying. But, you know, I'm, I'm so happy for you for this project to be at least shining a light on what I saw in this film. Well, I, I think you said it really well. And I think I'll, just to tell you as filmmakers, one of the things that really, um, we almost didn't make this project even when Larry won and we thought we could get some access to him because we are so conditioned as storytellers to thinking that all of these drama dramas take place in the courtroom. You know, you think about law and order, you think about the true crime genre of docu-series and you think about everybody goes in front of the courtroom, there's a judge, there's a jury, um, there are all these cases. And, and the fact is that actually those stories are the aberration, not the rule. You know, 95% of all cases in the criminal justice system and with a plea deal. So that means you never get a judge and a jury. You get a prosecutor who made a decision behind closed doors. And oftentimes those decisions, as you're saying, are rooted in centuries of systemic racism. And so if you really want to understand the gears of mass incarceration and understand how we got to where we are, you have to look at the prosecutor's office. And there are over 2,500 prosecutor's offices around the country. And so if people care about those issues. You've got to start by looking at your local prosecutor who's an elected official exactly. that sometimes has even more power than your congressperson, your state elected official, because they can unilaterally decide the criminal penalties for laws that are on the books. They get to interpret them and decide if they comport with the will of their voters. So I think those issues of, of, of racism and systemic inequality, they can start at the prosecutor's office, but kind of what our series wanted to, to show is 
while it's super important to start there, they don't have a magic wand. You have to look at the role of police unions. You have to look at the role of judges. I mean, there, there's more that our series didn't get into in terms of like sheriff associations, uh, correctional uh, officials, uh, correction officer unions. Um, it's, it's, it's a super complicated and multifaceted hydra, but that doesn't mean you can't start chipping away at the things where your vote matters. And most people don't vote in their, their DA's elections. It's one of the most underrepresented uh, civic office where people just let incumbents sail through year after year. And one of the main goals of our series was to say, this is one of the areas where your voice can be heard. And if just you know 5% of the people start voting in those elections, it would be a sea change in the kind of policies that our government pays for and, and your vote pays for. Yeah, Ted, before you uh, respond, I just wanna say that in terms of sort of fear-based political voting, I think the DA's voting patterns are more fear-based than almost any other elected official. And that the DA can say, you know, and no DA that I know of, with Larry being an exception, has ever lost his office by virtue of saying, I'm going to lock up less people. That That's just the nature of the way we see the district attorney. Um, Ted, is there anything you want to add to our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you just said there is an extremely important point and something that we really tried to look at in the series because it's become emblematic of the culture of the DA's office. I think one of the things that was really alarming and illuminating for us is that, you know, getting behind closed doors in the criminal justice system and really seeing how it works is we kind of realize like how much of these really crucial decisions about criminal justice policy and what happens in a courtroom and who we're gonna prosecute. So many of those things happen because of gut instincts. So many of those things happen because it's just the way we've always done it before. And it's not because that there was like anything studied or a tried and true reason, it's just emotion. And so we're creating a system based around fear and emotion and not about actual like data and understanding of the human condition and sociology. So, uh, and, and, and it's a, it's a tension that um, progressive prosecutors um, have to deal with when they're in office, constantly going against that old narrative of fear and emotion. Yeah. Science. Uh, you know, there is a burgeoning field of social science studies, uh, sort of uh, at cost that to society that is, is finally starting to really kind of take root in our, the way we address some of these issues. It, there, there are, and I'm so happy to see that, and I'm so glad to see Larry in his office champion this, not only, as, as you said in the series, they actually brought a criminologist into the office, which apparently was not done before he, he came into office. Maybe it was in some, on some lower level, but, but Larry Krasner made it an important part of the decision-making apparatus of the DA's office was an actual criminologist talking about actual facts on the ground as opposed to how I feel about something, which is just so important. <sighs> I, I heard the, the bells toll and I fear that they're tolling for us here uh, in terms of how much time I'm gonna have with you. I, I, I wanna let people know how they can watch Philly DA. It is, I, I just cannot say this strongly enough what a great series this is! What so many unsung heroes, if you will, in the in the course of uh, this making this film. I do want to talk. Just I just want to acknowledge people like Dana Bazelon, 
as well as uh, Bob, uh, Bob Liston B and Ben, you mentioned Ben Waxman, Movita Johnson Harrell. And if I'm butchering these names, I, I apologize. Mike Lee, there's so many people in here who are doing the nuts and bolts work that makes the DA's office in a way that more closely resembles the community that they serve. And I'm so yeah, and I think we really wanted our series to really um, show these characters. You know, they are doing a really amazing work, but they're also great characters that you could never write. And the stories that they're telling and the lives that they've lived, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's much to me more interesting than anything I've seen in scripted television. And I think that was our goal was to take the stuff that sometimes seems unsexy, the policy work, and show that it's actually really interesting and really dramatic. And it's all because of all those people who are not named Larry Krasner that fill out the whole series. Well, just before we leave, anything, Ted, you'd like to add to that? We've, I'm afraid we're going to run out of time here. So um, I want again, how can people, besides going to Topic, what's a website that people could go to to find out more about the series and about your work as well? Well, let's see. There's uh, so other than going to Topic, in a, in a couple of weeks, this series will be available via Amazon and the Apple Store. And PBS uh, has a dedicated website for the series uh, on the Independent Lens section of their website, which people can go to. And there is also a uh, Philly DA Facebook page that people can check out as well. Well, uh, my congratulations to both of you. It, this is just stellar work. And I am um, deeply appreciative, not only of this, but also your work. Uh, do I have this right? Your production company also did Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Is that something? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Department of Motion Pictures, which is a production partner um, of ours, did, did, makes a lot of amazing work like that. Yeah, a lot of great stuff. I, I've, I've Bill, uh, Bill Ross and uh, Turner Ross have been on the program a couple of times, so nice. I, I just love their work. Nice. And this is this is wonderful stuff. So Philly DA topic. You mentioned independent lens. You can go there to find out more about it. And also, if people want to go to the Department of Motion Pictures, they can go there as well. So uh, thank you both so very much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much, Mike. Here. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.